Okay, sorry. We kind of got our wires crossed on uh, announcements. If you are a guest, we are glad you're here. And I am going to talk to you about the tabernacle and the reason that we're doing this symbol series. I grew up somewhat believing that the Old Testament was interesting, but not necessary. You may have grown up believing that as well. You may still believe that. And the reality is, my study of the Old Testament has done more to enhance my understanding of God and His work in my life and His work in our lives as a church than much of what I've read in the New Testament. Not that the New Testament's not important. The New Testament is crucial, and if you're just going to read one, read the New Testament. You will not fully understand what Jesus has done if you don't read the Old Testament, though. You will not fully appreciate what God is doing and wants to do in your life right now unless you study things in the Old Testament. Now, the reason that we're doing this, the study on symbols is because God has intentionally given us certain symbols throughout his work with us to remind us of what he wants to do. Now, these symbols are important because God said, I want you to remember this. Now, when I tell my kids, I want you to remember something, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. When Deidre asked me to remember something, I always remember. <laughs> Not really, but you get, you get the gist, all right? God wanted us to remember these things. So it is crucial that when we look at the Old Testament, whatever he says, remember, we need to remember. Now, last week we talked about the rainbow and a more appropriate um, even though a rainbow is, is the sign, a more appropriate understanding of that bow is God's war bow, in which he hangs it up and says, I will never again destroy you in this fashion. It is the beginning of a change in the way God is working in his creation. As God created us in the Garden of Eden, everything was great. We were in paradise. We were made in the image of God. God was pleased with us. Things were good. We walked with him. We had a very different relationship with our environment, with the earth. And then when sin entered, we were cast out. And what we read last week, and let's just go, I think I put these on slides leading up to the tabernacle. Um, Number one, so leading up to the building of the tabernacle, we see that that we, humanity, is cast out of this paradise. We don't fully understand all the implications of what this means, but it's more than simply we are no longer in paradise. There is a fundamental change in us, a fundamental change in the way we operate, in the way we see the world, in in our relationship with the world, and certainly in our relationship with God. What we read last week is that sin then increased, in which every thought on men was evil intentionally, or, or consistently, continually. That's the word I'm looking for, continually. And so as that happened, God said, I'm going to wipe out all of humanity. Every living animal on the earth, I'm going to wipe out. And, um, and he did. But Noah found favor in his eyes. And after the flood, God said, I will never do this again. Taking that bow instead of aiming it at us because we needed to pay for our sin, he hung it up in the sky so that we would know forever that God was not going to judge us in that way again. We would be judged later, but he would never again try to wipe us out with water. Um, Interestingly, we found the rainbow in three places continually that it is going to stand in the sky for us to see, and Scripture says for God to see. We see it um, in the book of Revelation. It is in God's throne room right now where God is consistently. There is a rainbow there. And Scripture also tells us that when Jesus returns, he's going to return with a rainbow over his head. Not a halo, but a rainbow over his head. All of it is to remind us God is taking a change in the way he's dealing with us towards redemption. So that's what we started with last week. Now, this week we could have gone in a number of different directions, and I chose the tabernacle because uh, this is so crucial to understand how God is moving and compelling us to be able to be restored to how we were created. So I want you to stick with me. I'm going to share a lot of information with you, several scriptures with you, but what I want you to see is how God is moving beyond the flood, and he's moving towards redemption for us, going so far as doing what no other religion that you will find in the world, no other God that is worshiped anywhere else does this. He comes and and abides with his people. If you go and look at any other religion on the face of the planet, you do not see their deity coming and abiding, living, 
and his presence being with their people. The incarnation is uniquely Christian. It is uniquely the story of God's, the true God's work within our lives. Sin increased, God's patient ended, the rainbow, we have the sign of the rainbow next. What we find is we follow their history. God cuts a covenant with Abraham. If you'll remember, he's doing very well. But he says, if you will get up and move and follow me for where I'm going to go, not even telling him where he's going to go, but if you will follow me, I will make your descendants numerous and they will grow. And we know that Abraham is ultimately going to be the father of the Israel nation. He does follow Abraham fathers Isaac. You know the story probably of Abraham and Isaac. Isaac fathers Jacob and Esau. Probably many of you know the story of Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob fathers Joseph. We spent some time last year, the year before, on Joseph's story. Joseph was sold into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. He interprets some dreams. He literally becomes the number two man in all of Egypt. And when a famine comes, his family comes to him, and he takes care of them, and the Israelite nation is saved through Joseph. A period of time goes by. Joseph dies, the nation of Israel grows in Egypt, and for 400 years they're there. Over time, they have grown so large that they become a slave workforce for the pharaohs. And eventually, God sees their suffering, and he he decides that he's going to intervene. We read about that in Exodus chapter 3. It says, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, And have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey. To the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. He is going to rescue them. How does God eventually rescue them from Egypt? Somebody tell me. They crossed the Red Sea before they were able to do that. How'd they get out? The 10 plagues. Uh, Moses is lifted up. Moses looks at God and says, what do you mean you want me to deliver your people? Who am I? I can't do that. I can't even talk good. He says, yes, you're going to go. And he goes and has help. 10 plagues. Pharaoh releases them. Pharaoh changes his mind, goes after them. The Red Sea is parted. The nation, which now numbers in the millions, crosses the Red Sea unharmed. As Pharaoh and his forces follow after him, the Red Sea collapses on them and kills them. So, this is where we kind of pick up with the Israelites. They're going to wander in the desert, in the wilderness, total 40 years. The story of the tabernacle is going to enter into their story after about three months. So they're going to have been wandering for about three months. They're out of Egypt. They're still getting their bearings. Millions of people. They're all traveling together. But in total, they're going to be in there for 40 years before they make it to the land that God says. God then, after three months, meets Moses on Mount Sinai. Are you following with me? Y'all awake? If you need more coffee, go get it. I'm telling you, you got to get this stuff. This is the history of the Old Testament. This is how we get here. God meets Moses on Mount Sinai after three months, gives him the Ten Commandments. And this is the place where he's going to live among his people. He's chosen them. I'm going to live among you. He also, during that 40 days in which Moses is on Mount Sinai, it happens twice, by the way, because, you know, people are stubborn. I mean, some people are, not me, others are. And in that 40 days, God gives him the Ten Commandments. He gives him the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He gives them um, also all of the instructions for the tabernacle, which is what we're talking about today. See, it took me a while to get here, but we're here. Gave him the instructions for the tabernacle. And then Moses comes down. What happens? What? The people got tired of waiting. Now, you've been up there for 40 days. We want to worship something. I mean, we're out of Egypt, and we need a God. So they made, took all the gold. They made a golden calf. Moses got mad because, you know, preachers get mad sometimes. And took the, took the Ten Commandments, broke them over the calf, had to go back, which I don't know how that conversation went. We're going to talk about this next week, by the way. I don't know how that conversation went. Like, you know, God, I know that you supernaturally did something you've never done before ever in all of history. You wrote down your words on a tablet. Something happened to them. 
<laughs> you know, like what Moses, what happened? I don't want to say, you know, <laughs> I really don't want to tell you. And he gets another set of tablets that becomes important in our discussion in just a minute. And then we have this incredible exchange in scripture between God and Moses. This is where we're going to pick up. Now stick with me. I know that was a lot. I've got a little more, but stick with me. Exodus 34, beginning with verse 29, says this. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony, Ten Commandments, in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Let that sink in. Moses had been spending time with God, and it was such an overwhelming experience that his skin glowed, and he had no idea. He was literally glowing. We talk about glowing, and usually I think when we talk about someone glowing, it means they're a little sweaty. I don't know why that's a good thing, but that's kind of when you're glowing. Like a new mom, yeah, she's been sweating. She just delivered a baby. Of course she's glowing. She's sweating. She's hot and tired and probably needs a bath. You know, She's, she's exhausted. For him, he's shining, right? There's a significant thing that is happening to him. The presence of God should have lasting consequences on us. Let me just say that here because that's what the tabernacle is all about, the presence of God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel that he was commanded, what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. And it is popularly understood that the veil was to to not show when his skin, when he would stop shining. Um, It was just a discouraging thing for the people. They were literally afraid when this would happen to Moses. All of this is to say that being in the presence of God will have a tangible effect on you. We live in a culture where God is optional. Where many people who look at us as Christians will say, that's not real. They call us hypocrites. They say Jesus is our crutch. And if we're honest, many times they are not wrong. We are often hypocritical. We are often failing in the very tenets in which we espouse. And many times, I know for myself, I need Jesus as a crutch. And that is not seen as a healthy thing within the world. We don't talk about cigarettes that way (laughs) or alcohol, but Jesus is bad to have a crutch, right? So many people will look at the church today and think there's nothing real to that. It's a fairy tale. It's made up. And the reality is if someone talks about Jesus but has not experienced him, they are not going to sound very credible. If you talk about Jesus but don't spend time with him, you will not come across to others as credible. Because the presence of God has a tangible effect on us. Tangible meaning it changes us. It's interesting when Peter was arrested, he and John were being tried and they said, you can leave this place only if you stop talking about Jesus. And his response was incredible. He said, how can we, having experienced this, not talk about it? (laughs) How can this being real not compel us to act even if you would put us to death? Because the Spirit of God, the presence of God, tangibly changes us. Now we see that 
beginning in the Old Testament with the tabernacle. The tabernacle is eventually going to become the temple, and then we're going to jump all the way to Jesus, because eventually Jesus is going to say, the temple and the tabernacle are no longer necessary because I am here, and now my spirit will dwell in you. The presence of God will be among you. So there's you a shot forward to why this is important. If we look at the tabernacle, which literally means a tent of meeting, this was literally God's house. Have you ever heard anybody say, you know, don't run in God's house? Just me, huh? I heard that all the time when I was a kid. Don't be running to God's house. Like, does God live here? You know, but literally in the tabernacle, it was constructed simply like a house. It was a tent of meeting. It was literally where God would preside. And in fact, we'll read in just a minute, whenever God was there, a cloud would surround the tabernacle and it would demonstrate God's presence among them. And then when it was time for them to pick up and go, The cloud would go up into the sky, fire would appear in the sky, and then they would say, basically, follow that. And so they would pick everything up, and millions of people would follow after this fire up in the sky. Whenever it would stop, they would stop, set out the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, so that God could stay there, his presence would be there, and they could convene with God. At least the priests could. So when we look, next slide, this is a picture of the tabernacle. It's literally meant to be a picture of God's house, like where God lives. Not that God lives in a place like this, but it was something that we could understand. There was an entrance, and you would walk in, and there were certain pieces of furniture that you would see. There was, outside of this, yeah, let's stay, just stay right here. Outside, there were basically seven pieces of furniture that made this, this up. Every one of these had a purpose. And every one of these were a symbol in which God was trying to communicate to something. If we go from the bottom to the top, down at the bottom you see a copper basin and you see a copper altar. Outside of the actual structure of God's house in the courtyard, you would find two pieces sitting out there. Copper basin and the copper altar. You would first see the copper altar. In the Old Testament... We begin to understand what sin is. We read about the original sin and then how sin enters into the world and how God is calling us out of it. The Ten Commandments addresses, teaches us what is good and bad, what is right and wrong, what he says is valuable and not, and then how we atone for it. So part of the law that Moses received was a whole system of sacrifices to atone for sin. When you would first walk into the courtyard of the tabernacle, you would approach this copper altar. And this is where you would perform the atoning sacrifice. This was where the blood sacrifice was, t- was made and then burned. You would walk further into the courtyard and you would come across a copper basin. And in the copper basin, purity before God was a value then as it is now. And so a priest would come in and he would wash his hands and his feet as a sign of cleanliness and purity before he could enter into that tent. Go to the next picture for just a second. Once he would enter into the tent, this first section is called the holy place. And your average person could not go in there. The priest. And then the section behind that curtain is called the most holy place. Or sometimes referred to as the Holy of Holies. This was literally the dwelling place of God among his people. Literally, God came down and he lived here among them. It was an incarnation at that moment of their time. So when you would walk in, you would have the menorah, which was also called the golden lampstand, which is understood to represent one of the trees of the gar- in the garden, the tree of life. Yeah, stay right there. The menorah, which is the lampstand, it represented the tree of life in which they did not eat. Remember, there were two trees in the garden, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they did eat, and the tree of life, which God kicked them out of the garden before they could eat that. So there's the lampstand, the altar of incense. Have you ever read in Scripture where whenever you pray, your prayers are like a fragrance lifting up that is pleasing to God? It comes from this imagery of the altar of incense. God prescribed to Moses a way of developing incense, and it would constantly burn as they would pray before they entered into the Holy of Holies. Table of showbread, 
is literally where you would take 12 pieces of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel and you would leave it on the table. It would be similar to your dinner table at home. And the entire week, you would leave these 12 pieces of bread on the table and on the Sabbath, the priest would come in and literally eat with God at God's table. Table of showbread. That's where in some churches, like we've got these little tables up here that we'll use sometimes, they'll have a communion table or they'll sometimes call it an altar or they'll sometimes say, this is God's table. It comes from the table of showbread to come and commune with God at his table. Once you go into the Holy of Holies, you have two pieces. The Ark of the Covenant is actually two pieces of furniture prescribed by God to Moses. The Ark of the Testimony is the box, and then the mercy seat covers the box. And within the box, what you would find and what was proposed to Moses to put in this box were the broken tablets of the first ten commandments that he broke over the golden golden calf, There was also a golden jar uh, filled with manna to represent um, God's providing for them while they're walking in the desert. Because remember, they didn't have any food, and so he provided manna every day. And the third thing was, if you want to go back and read, we're not going to spend time on this, though we could, you would find Aaron's rod. There was a moment when the people rebelled against Moses. And so all the leaders of the rebellion came forward and God said, or Moses said, well, God will choose who is going to be the leader of our little band of merry men and women. And so they all threw their rods down and only one of them budded immediately. And it was Aaron's. It is said that his rod, his staff that budded is also in the Ark of the Testimony, which represents the law, which represents the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And on top of that, then sets the mercy seat, where two cherubim are on top. Now, that's the last bit of academic stuff I need you to hold into your brain for the next few minutes, okay? This is the tabernacle. If you want to talk to somebody who understands the presence of God, talk to a Messianic Jew. Because a Messianic Jew has been both very immersed in the customs of the Jewish culture, who which still follow this prescription, but yet they know Jesus is the true Messiah, and so they understand God's presence, not only from this context, but from an indwelling within us context. What God is doing with the tabernacle is saying, I am with you. You are not alone. I am going to guide you. I am going to be with you. I am going to take care of you. Where I am, stay with me. The problem was Israel throughout their history wouldn't stay with him. They would go somewhere else. The mercy seat was literally the throne of God because he was the, what we would call it, Israel was a theocracy. In other words, God was king. But they didn't like that because nobody else operated that way. Everybody that kept conquering them had a king. And so they said, well, we need a king. And so they departed from God's plan. But everywhere they would go, they would take this. Whenever they moved into the promised land and whenever they set up their capital in Jerusalem, then they created a temple that was a permanent installation of the tabernacle. So this is a crucial piece of God trying to communicate to them. And remember where he's come. I created you to be like me. What I've created is good. You have turned from me. You have sinned. You have walked away. I'm going to wipe you out off the face of the planet. But instead, he had favor in Noah that would then go on to all of humanity. And then he comes into this point of their story and he says, now, not only am I not going to destroy you, I am going to begin the process of redeeming you. And that's going to begin with my presence in your midst. I'm going to be with you. This is crucial. This is crucial when you understand that our faith is not just about a bunch of precepts and beliefs. It's not just about coming to church. It's not just about doing a Bible study. It is about being with the indwelling God. I mean, literally, the God of all creation saying, I want to be with you. I want to walk with you. I want you in my proximity. You are going to not go anywhere that I'm not at. And this is what it means to know Jesus. Not that we have a predetermined set of things you're supposed to do that prove that you love Jesus, because that's called religion. (laughs) This is about knowing and walking and being with Christ. Interestingly, one last thing. 
Some scholars believe, though Scripture doesn't specifically say this, that the tabernacle was also supposed to demonstrate the Garden of Eden. Two things pointing to that. The menorah, the Ark of the Testimony, which is the bottom part of the Ark of the Covenant, which you only know of because of what Jeremy's already reminded me. Indiana Jones, it's the only reason any of you know what the Ark of the Covenant is. He wanted to know if we were showing a clip today. Is anybody going to have their face melted off today? Unfortunately not. Or maybe fortunately not. I don't know which one today. But um, those represent those two trees in the Garden of Eden. Interestingly, it always had to face east, in which the gate of the Garden of Eden was in the east, was facing east. And also there were two cherubim protecting the presence of God in which you could not enter into the Holy of Holies unless you were the, the high priest, you had been purified and you had no sin within you that had not been atoned for. They would literally, when you would walk into the Holy of Holies, tie a rope around your neck, or around your neck, not your neck. Your, <laughs> some people thought about that, I'm sure. But it was around your foot, your ankle. God, that was, I don't know where that came from. Uh, and a little bell, bell on it. Because if you were not purified and you walked into the Holy of Holies, you came into the presence of God and you were not pure, you would literally fall over dead. As long as the bell was dangling, oh, he's okay. When it stops, it's like, oh, let's pull, pull him out. <laughs> you know, he's gone. He's a goner. The cherubim guard that, the presence of God. And yet when we read the account of being kicked out of the Garden of Eden, there are also cherubim there with flaming swords guarding the entrance so that you cannot go in. So according to some who study this a lot more than I do, this is a picture of the Garden of Eden. This is a picture of the return. This is what we talked about last week. A return to the state in which we had originally been created. God is ushering that into their presence. Because remember, God made us to be like Him, to walk with Him, to talk with Him, to be with Him. And sin separated us from Him. So this makes the tabernacle immensely important for understanding God's work. This is the story of of God coming into this place and inhabiting the tabernacle. Exodus 40 says, "Then Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, and in the side of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The tabernacle, and then later the temple, was a symbol of God's first step towards restoring us to paradise with Him. God is beginning a long process that's going to span thousands of years to the place where they could be restored to him. This is ultimately the beginning of the process, which doesn't end until Jesus returns and has said he will create a new heaven and a new earth. At that time, all of this will be done away with. That will be the end of the redemption of the paradise in which God originally created. And if you remember last week, we we read some of St. Athanasius who literally said, we were created to live in paradise. Whatever our picture of heaven is right now, that is what we were created to always be in. And that is what God is working to restore us to because he is a good God. And a good God does not abandon a corrupted creation. The tabernacle was the abiding presence of God with them. Now, as I said, this is still practiced today. In the temple. And in fact, if you're a student at all of world affairs, you'll know that there is great tension and strife right now over the temple and who gets it. It is still the practice of Jews today to do this very thing and to believe that God is there. And yet, as we read the New Testament, we know God is not still in the Holy of Holies, He has left that place. This incarnation in the Old Testament would happen again, not through the tabernacle, not through a cloud, not by fire, but through the coming of Jesus Christ. He is God with us. The pronouncement of Jesus' birth, he was called what? Do you remember? 
Emmanuel, which means, see, the, God, the presence of God has always been the point of our faith, being with God. If we make it about something else, then it is not real. And unfortunately, many people make their faith about something else other than the presence of God, and their faith becomes very discouraging and empty. And they wonder, is this real? Does this have any real measure to it? Is it having any tangible effect on me? And if you are not interested in the presence of God, you will not be interested in anything else that God is doing in the world. Because what God is saying is, I am here with you. The incarnation. Again, there is no other practicing faith that has an incarnational God like Christ. The tabernacle was the abiding presence of God with them. Jesus was the fulfillment of the incarnational presence of God with his people. John chapter 1 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him. And cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus was the fulfillment of of the incarnational presence of God with his people. Now, if we go back and we try to kind of close this historical timeline, how God is working through his people leading up to this moment, God is only among the Israelites. He's saying, these are my people. I'm going to work on behalf of my people. Whenever they turn to me and follow me, I will bless them. Whenever they turn away from me and ignore me, then I will, I will remove the blessing. And if you want to read something that kind of your own story in Scripture, just read the story of the Israelites because you'll see that they turn from God and things don't go well. They turn back to God and things go well. They turn away from God and things don't go well. They turn back to God and things go well. That's the story of my life. And they do it over and over and over. And you read it, and as a third person, you're like, those people are idiots. I, wh- wh- how hard is it to understand? You turn away from God, you get conquered. Just don't turn away from Him. And then I look in the mirror, and I go, oh, I get it. I get it. You're just like me. Because that's what I do. So he closes this loop on the day in which he is crucified. Do you remember what happened when he breathed his last? He cries out to his father in heaven. He breathes his last. What happens next? Somebody tell me. The veil is torn. There's an earthquake. There is thunder. And this thick veil. And the veil they're talking about is the, is the curtain between the most holy place or excuse me, the holy place and the most holy place. It is that curtain that separates the holy of holies from everyone else. It is torn. The reason that the symbol of the tabernacle is important is because it reminds us that God wants to be with us. His presence is tangible and has a tangible effect on us. And when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn for God to say, I no longer reside in this house. I'm going out into the world. We know later that eventually Christians are going to say, well, only Jews can be saved. Still God's people. The Israelites were God's people. Now only Jews can be saved. And the apostles are going to come together and they're going to decide, no, this is God. God has gone out into the whole world. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. Men, women, it doesn't matter. Race, it doesn't matter. God is going out for all people. And when the curtain is torn it is the end of the tabernacle the end of the temple as a place in which we commune with god jesus destroyed the temple 
so the presence of God could enter the world through the Holy Spirit. John chapter 2, we read this. It's a well-known story of Jesus cleansing the temple, which, by the way, appears to have happened twice, not once. This is a good conversation for another time. Happens twice, not once. Two different accounts in the Gospels. One has it early in Jesus' ministry. One has it late in Jesus' ministry, which is a very interesting topic to study, if you would like. There are some very interesting implications if this is true. John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, just as an aside, if you've not been with us before, uh, and we've talked about this this event in the past, just a 30-second snapshot. Jesus is coming into the temple. Rome is now in charge. The priests are now appointed by Rome. The, the whole system has become corrupted, but it is also a meeting place. All of the little uh, areas that made up Israel, they all had different currencies. So when they would come to the temple in order to make their atoning offering, um, then there were people there to basically take their money and convert it into, you know, the the more um, well distributed form of money. And so that's what a money changer was. But they weren't giving them a fair exchange rate. They would bring their amount of whatever their local currency was, and they were just giving them pennies on the dollar, and it made him angry. Because here they are trying to offer sacrifice and atonement, be with God, be in the presence of God, and they're being chewed out of it so that they can make money. And so he comes in, and he sees it, and he's angry. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. This is important that Jesus is saying this. Destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. He was doing away with the old way of being in the presence of God, is what Jesus is saying. But it wasn't going to happen until he died. The temple would be destroyed. In three days it would be built. The curtain being torn destroyed the purpose of the temple, though the temple still stands. They put a new curtain up. But it's destroyed in the eyes of God. He no longer operates in this way. Instead, Jesus is ushering in a new way for understanding the presence of God. Do you feel today, as you sit in this room, as if God is with you? When you're alone in your car, do you just feel, at times, overwhelmed by the presence of God within your life? When we're worshiping and you're singing... Are you trying to get through the words? Are you trying to understand the harmony? Are you trying to figure out, you know, who's off, who's on, or, you know, or, or how am I supposed to fit in? Or the person next to me probably shouldn't have tried to sing today. I don't know what you're thinking about. Maybe they're thinking about you. I don't know. Or do you become overwhelmed with the sense that God is here with us? See, there's a difference between performance and worship. There's a performance that says, I make sure I do all the things right. I say the words right. I get the intonation right. I get, the, I get all the, the, you know, the chords right and the beat right. And I get all that right. And then, and then there's, there's a part of being overwhelmed for the fact that God is here with us. I find increasingly when I ask people, do you ever just feel like God's just the overwhelming presence of God? And increasingly, I, I, that sounds a little weird to me. And yet this is the story of all of Scripture. This is it. This is it. This is the point. God created us to be with Him, to walk with Him, to talk with Him, to experience Him, to behold His glory. And yet even today, many of us struggle with this fact, thinking, I don't, 
I don't know that I've ever felt that way. Jesus destroyed the temple so the presence of God could enter the world through the Holy Spirit. The presence of God left the Holy of Holies once Jesus died. Read it, Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook. The rocks were split. The tombs were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now we're talking about revival. All right. When your dead grandma comes walking in the service, you better start singing louder, all right? And when they pass the offering plate, you better start giving. You know what I'm, t- you know what I'm saying? Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. Because you see, the presence of God will have a tangible effect on us. The presence of God is not having a tangible effect on you. There's a problem. There's a problem. The reality is I've gone long periods of time in my life. I've not been concerned about the tangible presence or the effect of his presence on me. So we map our lives out. We think the way we want them to go. And then we go after them. And then when things don't go exactly the way we want, we say, God, I really could use your help right now. And sometimes he does. Their boy Convincing us that this is the way we're supposed to live our lives? Many times he doesn't. And then we begin to question, well, is God even really there? Because he's not answering my prayer. And the truth is that God is inviting us to something so much more than that. He's wanting to absolutely change us. Jesus talks about us being new creations. You are nothing like what you were before. He talks about new wineskins in which you can't take something that was already existing and forced this thing that God's doing in it because it can't hold it. He's got to do something completely new. He's got to make you completely new. Which is why I find it interesting that many people, when they, when they have a radical experience with Christ for the very first time, and they, they just radically are changed. I mean, out the gate, they're different. Out the gate, they're different. But I find just like Moses's shining skin stopped shining over time we often see that in the lives of people who were excited about their faith at one time and they go what is it what am i missing now what we do in the american church is we it's the church's fault so we go find another church and then my shine will come back what god is saying is the problem is not the church the problem is your proximity to my presence I want you to understand this, all of you that are here right now. If you don't take anything else away, if you don't remember the table of showbread, there won't be a quiz. I promise. Maybe in your small groups if y'all are talking about our sermons, but there won't be a quiz. But if you don't hear anything else from me today, hear this. If you follow Christ, you are now the temple of God. You are the tabernacle. You are the temple. See, for them, millions of people would camp out around the tabernacle just so they could be near the presence of God. But, but, but see, now what Jesus has done is he abides in you. So wherever you go, there he is. And we don't have to come around the proximity of a place. I believed early on in my faith that the church was something special and it was something you know, holy, and, and we just kind of, I think many of us kind of absorb the meaning of the tabernacle into our current day church facilities, and really all this is is a building, just like any other building. This is not in any way, uh, you know, holy, because that's not how God works anymore. 
Instead, what he's doing is he's purifying you within you. God is changing you. He's changing us. If you follow Christ, you are now the temple of God. Now, let me wrap up. 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17 says this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So what does this mean? If you follow Christ, you are now the temple of God. Number one, it means, I've already said this, God's presence is with you wherever you go. I find it interesting that even among Christians, loneliness is an epidemic. We feel lonely. Some of the people that I admire greatly, they're just bastions of faith. They're very lonely. We've been working intentionally for some time now, working with pastors in our city, and the number of pastors in our city that are lonely is unfathomable. Nobody talks about it because pastors are supposed to be perfect, right? They get everything right, right? I mean, Deidre doesn't believe that, but some people do. The truth is, is there's brokenness among God's people even though the Holy Spirit is supposed to dwell within them. We've got to deal with that. We've got to figure this out. Because this is not what God said it was going to be like. God's presence is with you wherever you go. That means you are never alone. Never, ever, ever alone. You are never alone means you can speak with God without having to bring a sacrifice or without having to be born into the priestly lineage because Jesus has become our high priest. You don't have to have a ceremony. You can do this anytime, any place. When we talked about worship, I challenged you just sometime during the week, stop and worship intently where you are. You can do that because the Spirit is with you. But the second thing that we have to consider is that you take God's presence with you wherever you go. You need to consider that. You take God's presence with you wherever you go. Now that means we do need to be careful where we go. We do need to be careful what we do. We do need to be careful what words we use. Because we are representatives of God. Not just those who are in, in, in ministerial staffs. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a representative of God. You have God within you. You are the temple of the living God. You need to be careful where you go. But increasingly, you also need to be God's presence where you are. You know some of the ways you can be God's presence right where you are? You can be a presence of peace for a group of people. If you work with people that are mad all the time, I know you all don't. You all work in perfect places. But if you, if you know of anybody that works in a place that's not perfect, you can be the spirit of peace for them because the Holy Spirit is with you. If you're in a hopeless environment, you can be the spirit of hope in that environment because you are bringing the living God with you. But do you believe that? See, if we don't believe that, we just go about our lives. But when we believe God dwells in me, you're empowered. I find it's very easy to be a narcissistic Christian, to feel that everything revolves around me and God exists for me. And whenever I need something, God's supposed to take care of me and me, 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 me. I mean... It's just the culture in which we live. But when you understand that you, you are anything because of God in you, it leads to humility and thankfulness and worship. Because I am any, if I am anything, it's only because of God. God is with you. You take God with you wherever you go. Matthew 18.20 says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Why? Because you brought him with you. I want to encourage you. 
We can get into the studies of the tabernacle and just be like, oh, this is so boring. I just, just, I don't like this. Let's go back and read more about Jesus whipping people. That's a lot more fun. But I'm telling you, this stuff was meant to remind us until Jesus returns. It's meant to remind us of God's faithfulness and goodness, love and mercy and grace, and that he came for us. And he didn't have to, but he came for us. And he didn't just come for us for some specified time when we get to go to heaven. We get him right now. He dwells within us. Since the beginning of creation, God has made a way to be with you. As we sing, as we close in worship, let our worship be, God, you have made a way to be with me. And I didn't do anything. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I wasn't better than anybody else. But you made a way to be with me. Help me to live every moment of every day of my life truly as if you live within me. Let me take him to everywhere I go. And hopefully they will experience his presence too. Would you pray with me? Father, God, I thank you for your mercies. Thank you for the symbols that you've given us to remind us of your incredible, overwhelming love for us. I do know there are days I do not feel like you are with me. God, it's hard for us to understand that. I know there are probably some others in this room that feel like that right now. But God, you have said that if we're following, if we know you, if we've repented of our sins, we believe that you are the Son of God, that you died and rose from the dead so that our sins would be forgiven, we could be saved, we could know you, we could be baptized into your family, and we could be baptized into the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit dwells within us. God, I want us as a, as a church to demonstrate to our community that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We are walking with God every minute of every day. Father, I pray that if there's something in our lives that is creating a barrier between us and you, that you would remove it. Father, I pray for for apathy on our hearts. That just says, I just want to go about my life. I just want to go do the next thing. I just, want to, I just want to be happy. And we literally blaspheme the Holy Spirit because he just isn't that important to us. Father, I pray that we would be made alive. And that wherever we go, we would bring you. That your presence would have a tangible effect, not just on us, but the people around us. Father, as we worship, we lift up your name because you are worthy everything. This is all about you. We are thankful that you have come to restore us to the place where you created us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.